Last um, Sunday evening at our evening gathering, we were uh, asking ourselves, we were looking at the passage uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus calls people to enter through the narrow gates and warned that uh, the road is broad to destruction. The road to destruction is broad. And uh, we asked ourselves, well, why, why, why do people walk the road to destruction? Why don't they become Christians? Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity now just to turn to the person next, uh, next to you and say what you think might be the key reason why Joe Average or Josephine Average doesn't become a Christian, why they walk that broad path. Just 30 seconds. Because they have to give up things. They like to have their own way. Ignorance. Think they don't need it. Comfortable as they are. Do you know there was an answer that um, that came up last Sunday evening that I've been thinking about during the um, the week. Someone said because all their friends are on that road. And I think that answer. Um, alongside, of course, many others which are valid. But that answer is more profound than it may appear. We like to think of ourselves as entirely independent thinkers, but we are not. We like to think that we make entirely independent choices, but we do not. The truth is actually more complex than that. Of course, everyone in life does have have independent thoughts, does have to make uh, independent choices, if uh, they don't, they would be totally immature and baby-like. But um, actually, we then sustain our ideas, we legitimate, legitimise our choices, we bolster our behaviour through the social group that we belong to. It's actually vitally important to, that we understand that. We are fundamentally social thinkers and actors. It is actually a mark of psychological illness if someone is prepared to think and act entirely independently of the world around them. They will end up in a mental institution. Let me give you an example, a trivial one in some ways. Uh, Johnny and I went to watch Australia play uh, uh, cricket this summer and sitting in front of us was a man making a very good effort at being a, a lager lout. He drank his beer, he taunted the Australians, he chanted, he shouted, um, actually entirely on his own. Eventually someone, uh, just a couple of seats down, leaned over to him and quietly asked him to be a little more quiet. And um, this uh, man apologised profusely he could not sustain that sort of behaviour on his own. Of course, take him to a football match with hundreds or thousands of others shouting and drinking like him and he would be absolutely confident and completely unchallengeable. Or uh, good behaviour actually, not just uh, bad, needs to be um, supported with social fabric. Part of the genius, for instance, of Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, Weight Watchers is that they provide a social environment which empowers people to wrestle 
with alcohol or obesity. And what goes for, for specific individual observable actions and thoughts actually applies much more broadly and much more deeply. We live in a social environment. We think in a social environment. We act in a social environment. We are bound into that web of relationships. So it is very, very difficult to extricate ourselves from that for good or for ill. If people, you see, are to become Christians then, they have to extricate themselves from one web And in order to do that, they need to see another set of social relationships that they can belong to. Here's the most important thing for, for, for us um, this morning as we um, uh, look at this passage in 1 Peter. A question. Will they be able to see a social world that, they, that is attractive, that will support them as they think about moving to become Christians. See, that is one of the primary reasons why God created his church. God's church performs two vital functions, as we'll see this morning. For Christians, it actually provides that, that web, that social environment, where our faith is nurtured and nourished and encouraged. We, we simply would not be able to sustain our beliefs and our lifestyles as Christians alone. That is just the way God has made us. It will be an extraordinary miracle of his if he does that. And he does not do that normally. Normally he puts people into relationships. But God's church performs another vital function as well, alongside supporting Christians. It provides that alternative, attractive world so that people who are not yet Christians can imagine making the leap to become Christians. Sociologist called uh, Peter Berger called it a, a plausibility structure. He's very clever, he liked to use those sorts of words. Christian truth, he says, only becomes plausible, believable, when it is, when it is lived out within a social world that makes it believable to the outside world. So how God's church functions is vitally important for us as Christians and for the world outside. And hence that is a very, very important emphasis everywhere in the New Testament, not least in 1 Peter. This question of how God's people function together. We're looking at 1 Peter, just really a very quick glance in, on four uh, uh, Sunday mornings at, at this letter as we, um, we think about um, what it means to be a church that is reaching out to the wider world. Last week 
we saw that a, a central characteristic of people who are touched by the gospel is actually happiness. Happiness that results in praise and glory and honour on the last day, not least from the lips of those who have uh, seen Christians and how they've been transformed. This week, though, we're going to be looking at what uh, Peter says about, uh, about how Christians then should function together. He actually uses three images in uh, uh, the passage that we're looking at this morning and we're going to look at those images one by one, seeing how they tell us how to live together. Remembering that that is absolutely vital if we are to be sustained in our faith, if we are to provide the world outside with something that is plausible in terms of a message. The first one then is a new family. Chapter 1 verse 22 Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart, says uh, Peter. He calls us brothers. The first consequences of, uh, consequence of, it, of purifying ourselves by, by the truth of becoming Christians, is that we love one another as brothers and sisters. But then he says, the growth and development that is, that is to characterise our life together is also to be love. Love which comes from the depths of who we are, from the heart, he says. Love which the NIV um, calls deeply, but which could be translated unceasingly or urgently is exercised. It's the word that nearly always in the Bible is applied to people praying fervently. But now, says um, Peter, you are to love fervently. Now, I bet there are plenty of people whose, whose, whose reaction when they, uh, they, they read something like that is to, is to say, well, I, I don't feel loved as I ought to be in the church. Let me make a confession. Pastors sometimes even think that. But this, this text, you see, is not saying you have a right to be loved. You know, a world where everyone claims their rights is actually a world increasingly divided by disappointed expectations. It's very important we see what Peter says. He says, you have a Christian duty to love. There are no get-out clauses. The fact that we may not have been loved quite as well as we should have been does not excuse us from that duty. We are not too unwell we are not too unhappy, we are not too troubled to love others. Love is to be unceasing. We are not too busy to love others. Love is to be our highest urgent priority. We are not too junior in the church hierarchy to love others, as if those who are senior are responsible for loving the next ones down, who are responsible for loving the next ones down, and those who are at the bottom just lap it all up. That is not how the Bible says the church functions. We are all brothers and sisters. We are all to love one another. 
And we are not to be satisfied with only loving our friends in the church. Even the pagans do that, says Jesus. We are to love everyone whom Christ has made a brother or a sister. We're certainly not to to excuse ourselves that we've not yet reached uh, Christian maturity to love. It is the first mark of being a Christian, says Peter. And it is the mark of growing as a Christian. Actually, he says that we cannot live, uh, we cannot call ourselves Christians if we are not living lives of love. Because it's central to what it means to be born again. Verse 23, or the end of 22, Love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. See that connection? To be born again, to have eternal life, is to have hearts that are changed. He can only call them to love one another because they are born again. If they are born again, they can love. Love, he says, eternally even. Because we are born eternally. I I have to say, my my perception uh, right now in our our life as a church is that um, uh, there is a lot of sacrificial loving going on but probably to be absolutely honest amongst rather small number of us who often frankly are exhausted I fear that that, that there are a number of others of us who for various reasons are have not taken that injunction as seriously as we should. Perhaps it's because you feel semi-detached from the church. You just turn up on, the, on Sunday morning, but you don't feel like you've really got integrated into the church. Well, there may be responsibility of other people uh, for that, but that's not what we're to meditate on. If we are believers, our duty is to engage with other people and love them. Perhaps because you feel that you're you're no longer at the centre of the church, you feel marginalised. Well, churches go through phases in life, they they ebb and they flow in different areas of the church's life, that is normal, but the obligation to love and be concerned for others is unending. No, says uh, Peter, the first thing that we need to understand if we are to be the people that we were called to be is that God has made us into a family of brothers and sisters here, every one of whom has a responsibility to love from the very first breath of their new spiritual life and to love urgently, unceasingly, sacrificially all their lives. 
Then Peter moves on to uh, another image that he wants to uh, uh, give us as uh, he tries to explain how we are to live together. It begins in chapter 2, verse 4, where he describes Jesus as a living stone. Verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, he says. Peter's drawing on some Old Testament passages, as you see if you look at the next few verses, to develop that picture. He wants us to imagine a group of um, uh, stonemasons embarking upon a great building project and they need good foundations and are particularly searching for a, a suitable stone to go at the base of one corner of the building. And in his wisdom, God has placed the perfect stone right in their midst, right in front of them. But they miss it. Verse 7, this is the stone the builders rejected. But you see, God will not allow that perfect stone to be rejected. Those foolish uh, stonemasons may wander around actually stumbling over the stone. But God lays it in the right place. You see that in verse 6? See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. that, That stone, of course, is Jesus. Jesus who forms the foundation then for what God wants to build. So we've got a stable foundation now. Where are the rest of the stones to be found? Peter tells us, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ. You also, he says, are living stones. Christ is the foundation. Christians are the building blocks. If you go to Tainton in the Cotswolds, just a little bit north of um, um, Burford, you will um, uh, find uh, an old series of uh, quarries. They, uh, they're so old, actually, there are quarries mentioned in the Doomsday Book there. They um, are now irregular, formless holes in the ground. In the 17th century, the uh, rough Cotswold stone that was quarried for, from Tainton was taken down the road to Lechlade, placed on uh, barges that took uh, the stone down the Thames and it was used to build St Paul's Cathedral. Peter had seen uh, people doing something similar to this in Jerusalem as under Herod they built a great temple, the great temple of God. And Peter says though, never mind that. God's doing something far greater amongst you. God is taking rough-hewn stones from the ground and cutting and shaping you and placing you together to make a spiritual house which is far greater than the Old Testament temple where God dwelt. 
Indeed, he says, you're not only um, the stones that make up this new temple of God, you're the priests too. Do you see that in verse 5? You're being built into a spiritual house and then suddenly um, he sort of switches the image to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Christians are both the uh, superstructure of the building and the people who might give it life. This is a very, very special place here, you know. Not the location particularly, we could move uh, tomorrow and I don't think God would uh, be too heartbroken. And it's not actually exactly the people who make it special, though they are vital. It's the fact that this is the place that God chooses to meet with his people. He builds his people together on the foundation of Christ so that they can then engage in those activities which in the Old Testament were characterised by priests going about their business, offering sacrifices. And today are characterised by Christians offering sacrifices too but they offer themselves. As that happens, God dwells amongst us. This is the place then where God comes into his world in a special way. Perhaps you as a Christian feel far from God. Well, certainly read your Bible, pray, seek counsel from someone privately. But do not meet, give up meeting together. If someone wants to find God, let them find a community of God's people built on Christ. And one of the great cries of the outside world is, where is God? And part of God's answer to that is, in the church. Where is God in the aftermath of the New Orleans floods? He's in, God, he's, he's in the church as, as the church takes aid to the homeless and takes them into their homes. Where is God as the poor starve in the developing world? He is in the church as they give more money than all the rest of the, uh, the population to, uh, uh, to overseas aid. Where, where is God as, Christi- uh, as, as um, uh, uh, when I'm hurting, says someone? Well, here he is. God's people reach out to people to comfort and console. Where can I find a satisfying spiritual experience of God, says another. Perhaps it's the meditation room of an Eastern mystic. Perhaps it's some holy site. Perhaps it's by reading a mind-expanding book or learning a new technique. No, says the Bible, you will find the living God as you find a community of his people. This is his spiritual house, more glorious than St. Paul's. The second reason then why we must be vitally concerned about our life together, why we must be prepared 
both to build our life here on the foundation that is Christ and also to be built together as stones to make a building. Is that here is where the world meets God. It's his chosen place. Man says, uh, Peter, we are a new nation. Verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Actually, virtually every one of those phrases comes from Peter's Old Testament past and his knowledge of his Old Testament. He had been, he was a Jew. Once he had delighted in this Old Testament picture of Israel as God's chosen people. But now he sees God's true intention. It was to choose a new nation of people out of all nations. You know, his readers, mainly if not entirely, are from pagan backgrounds. That's why he says, once you were not a people. He could never say that to Jews. They had always been a people. Now, he's writing to Gentiles, whom he would have despised in the past as inferior races. But now he says that he and they are equally part of God's eternal purpose to raise up a people who love and serve Jesus Christ. A chosen people. Peter knew what Israel's great task had been in the Old Testament. It was set out in Exodus chapter 9. It was to be a nation of priests for the whole world. They themselves, said God, were set apart for a special relationship with God. They were a, a holy nation, but only because their role was then for the, all the rest of the nations to see how wonderful it was to love and serve God so that they would stream to that holy nations. They would be priests as a nation, mediating the presence of God to his world. But Israel failed. God's name became dishonoured because of them, not honoured. God's plan was not stopped. It was fulfilled in making the nation he had always looked forward to making, his church. And all that because he poured out his mercy on all these people. Once you were not a people, once you were scattered, he says, once you, once you had no relationship with one another, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. We here have a new national identity. It is not English or Irish or French or Nigerian or Congolese or Dutch or German or Spanish or Chinese or American or Peruvian or in, in Indian nor even from Bradford or Brighton. It is to be God's people. 
And there are certainly some challenges associated that, with that because we are a mixture of, of colour and language. Our earthly nationality will always be part of our identity but it's not the heart of our identity. We as God's people are a nation set apart for God with Jesus as our King to bring all nations to God. We are a royal priesthood. Israel failed that but Jesus said with absolute authority I will build my church. His chosen people. And the question always, of course, is are we living like that? Or are we just a sort of loose agglomeration of people who barely rub along because there's something or other that we happen to like about this? Are we really a nation? Do we really have that identity as our fundamental identity? It's only as we do that will we start to fulfil God's intention for us to be a royal priesthood, to declare God's praises. We have a, a mission coming up. And that mission will not, the success of that mission will not depend on Krishkandaya's skill or Paul Fairchild's administrative ability or whatever. Not least, it will depend on the quality of our life together. And what applies to that particular event applies even more to our long-term fruitfulness. If our world does not see a community of people who are forming a social uh, network which looks better and more healthy than the network they belong to, they will not be able to make the leap no matter how persuasive some great evangelist may be, they will not be able. And frankly we have to say, if we do not belong to a community ourselves as believers that supports us and encourages us and keeps us going, then we will not sustain our zeal as Christians. See, it was a little answer, it was a off-the-cuff answer, it was possibly a slightly trivial answer that was given last Sunday night. But it may be actually one of the most profound answers that we could come up with. Why do people not become Christians? What will keep me going as a Christian? That's one of the most important answers to that. It's because my friends are. <laughs>